This is your holy sanctuary, Lord. We come here to learn. I know sometimes, Lord, even on a Sunday night, we've got things that we're thinking about that are lying ahead. We're wondering even what's going to happen tonight, or we're distracted by the demands of our week. But Lord, for just an hour tonight, I pray that you would lay aside this time, that we could set it aside for you, and actually consecrate it and set it aside for you as a holy sacrifice, just to be here and to learn about you. So I thank you, Lord, just for minds that are willing to listen. And I praise you for that, because I know the impact will be strong. Lord, let us turn a critical eye towards the things that we're going to see tonight, but also remember that we'll never win over anybody with arguments. It's only going to be with love that we can actually win the day. And that's your love, because we don't have enough of it. I pray for your eternal love, that it comes through, and that you set up divine appointments through this movie, that we might be able to share your love with other people and explain the truth behind the fiction that's involved in here tonight. Do so lovingly. In your precious name, amen. So I was reading uh, The Da Vinci Code. I actually read it cover to cover. And I'm going to say the first thing about it is, it was a good book. I really liked it. You know, I'm going to be, I'm not the first person, by the way, in the church who said that. I'm not like I'm daring or trying to be controversial. It was actually a good book. Now, I will confess, I don't read a lot of fiction because I spend so much time reading nonfiction that it's hard for me to read fiction. So I don't know if compared to like Tom Clancy or some of these other people, this guy is good or he's not good. I, I don't know. But I read most of the literature from the great, you know, masters of literature when I was younger, and I thought this book was pretty good. Okay, so there's a few things in there that maybe we as a church don't like or agree with. That's kind of what we're talking about. But let's get something straight. Most people who pick up this book and read it from cover to cover are going to be like, that's a good story. And I think they're going to want to believe a lot of what's in it. Because we as human beings kind of, I don't know, I think we like a good conspiracy story. You guys ever see the movie JFK? You want to see that movie? Oliver Stone, masterful job. You know, when I went to see the movie JFK, I remember going into the theater and after watching that movie, and it was like three hours long, it was a long movie. By the time it was done, I remember running outside in the street, and this is like, you know, I released in the 90s, you know, JFK died in 63. I remember running out of the theater going, we gotta get those guys. You know, because that movie was so compelling and Oliver Stone did such a masterful job of weaving together things that were true with things that he believed. And the distinction was so well told, and I think probably one of the best filmed movies. If you go back and watch the cinematography of the movie itself, it's brilliant. He weaves together actual footage with things that look like actual footage, with things that look like recreations of actual events, and you can't tell the difference. And by the time you're done, he has told the story so well that you want to believe it. You want to believe that somebody has finally explained the story. Now, most conspiracy theories have a reason that most people want to believe them. One of them is there's something about the story that itches at us. You know, you have a young president like JFK, he's gunned down, and it makes no sense. So we're always thinking there must be something more to it than that. So that's the first thing that gets a conspiracy going. And the second thing is there's these weird facts that we can't really explain. For example, in the JFK conspiracy theories, one of the weird facts that Oliver Stone uses very well is you have an assassin who's supposed to be a, 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 you know, a guy who betrays the government, Lee Harvey Oswald, defects to Russia, renounces his U.S. citizenship, declares himself a communist, and this is in the height of the Cold War, marries a Russian woman, and then is allowed to come back to the U.S. without so much as an interrogation. And you think, 
yeah, that's weird. Somebody must be in on something because that fact couldn't happen. So we have a curious fact like that, and based on that, you build a whole conspiracy that the government must be behind the assassin because there's no way that you could defect, call yourself a communist, marry a Russian, come back to the United States without so much as an interview. So what does that have to do with the Da Vinci Code? The same exact formula is going on in the Da Vinci Code. In the book, we spend a lot of time focusing on these same kind of weird but true facts and then intertwine with them beliefs that seem to make sense to explain them because you go, yeah, that is weird. I wonder why that is. And then you intertwine these things. If you unwrap them, you find out there are other explanations for them. But when you tell a nice story from beginning to end and it's fun and it's cool and you're on the trek with these guys on the adventure, you just tend to believe everything that's going on. So that's what I want you to watch for, is how a good conspiracy is told. And this is just like that. It's a great conspiracy story. That's why I like the book so much. I thought, wow, this is really great. Too bad I'm a Christian. I can't believe this stuff. But if I wasn't, this would be actually plausible. You know, I could understand this guy really did his research. It was a really well-done book where he took enough true but weird facts and interwove them with his own beliefs. All right, so what is the book about? What are the, what are the beliefs that he has? I'm not going to spoil the whole movie for you. Unfortunately, we have to talk about it enough that when you go see it, you know, you're going to surprise most of the endings will be gone. But here's what the basic element of the book is, all right? The book is about the quest for the Holy Grail, okay? Contrary to what a lot of people think, it's about a whole bunch of codes in the Bible that reveal a lot of stuff. It's not really about that. In fact, I was surprised as I read the book that most of the theory about what well, what has bothered the church so much is really said in about four pages in the book, okay? These two people are on a, basically a treasure hunt, and here's how it begins. The curator of the Louvre Museum in Paris kills himself in a very strange way. Actually, as he's dying, he leaves some strange symbols, okay? We know he's gunned down. That's how the book begins. And as he's dying of a slow death, of a gunshot to the stomach, he draws a whole bunch of weird symbols on himself and on the artwork around him in the Louvre. And from those clues, his granddaughter, who happens to be part of the police that's going to be investigating, and an American named Robert Langdon, who's an expert in symbology, they team up and try to figure out what is he trying to tell them. Okay? And they soon find out that he is the grandmaster of a secret society that has kept the secret the secret, okay, all the years up until the present. What is the secret? It's the secret of what the Holy Grail really represents, okay? Now, I'm going to give you the summary version because you can go through all the codes. They go through one code after another that reveals them. It's like almost like being on a scavenger hunt. Every time they go through one code and break it, it leads them to another code, it leads them to another code, it leads them to another code. And what they're looking for is the burial place of the Holy Grail. Now, most of us, we learn very quickly in the book, think the Holy Grail is a cup the cup of Christ. But we find out very quickly that's not what the Holy Grail really is supposed to be according to this book. The Holy Grail really is not a cup, it's actually a person. And the person is Mary Magdalene, who is supposed to have married Jesus, born children, and there's a long line of descendants of Jesus who eventually moved to France in the fourth century, intermarried with certain kings and founded the city of Paris, and now their descendants are still, that's the biggest secret of the world, or who are the descendants of Christ, and where are the secret documents hidden that prove all of this really happened, and why is the church trying so hard to kill this secret, okay? That's really what it's about, okay? Very simple. It comes in those few pages when they say, most people think the grail is a cup, it's actually Mary Magdalene, and here's how we're going to tell. Now, you're going to see in the Dateline special tonight that we're going to show that one of the theories is it all bases around Leonardo da Vinci, okay? 
The first clues are left around the Mona Lisa. The rest of the clues say that he's the head of, he was once the Grand Master himself of the secret society, that he himself knew all the secrets, and he painted them into different paintings. So the paintings become some of the ways they detect it. One of the most famous is the Last Supper painting, which you'll see how they describe that we thought it was Jesus and the 12 disciples. It's actually Jesus, 11 disciples, and Mary Magdalene in the picture, and they show us how that works. Okay. That's generally what the book is about. What we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is not so much paying homage to the book. I don't want to spend time doing that. Tonight we're going to go through it, and we're going to identify what are the different heresies in this book. One is, of course, that Jesus was married and had children. I think we could probably dismiss that pretty easily as one of the things that we, we believe as a church is not true. But there's a much more subtle story being told in the Da Vinci Code, and that is that the early church knew that Jesus was not divine, that the early church knew that the books of the Bible that they chose were going to meet their interests while there were other books that they rejected for their own purposes. Also that the whole history of the church was really an effort to kill pagan religions. And the whole underlying tone of the book is summarized in this one conversation when the granddaughter, Sophie, turns to Robert Langdon and says, but if we find these documents shouldn't we tell the world that Christianity isn't true? And he responds and says, really, I'm paraphrasing, no religion is true. The only problem is when people start to believe that it's true. We don't need to tell people their religion isn't true. People need hope. They need religions. The only problem is when they start to believe it's actually true. And that's really what underlies this book. If you look at it and you want to put it into a capsule, is that the person who's writing this book comes at it from Christianity is not only not true, no religion is true. All religion is myth and hope and worship of something that's unknown, but it's not really about truth. It's about something in us as human beings that needs to hope and have deities and create all these myths and believe in them. And that's really what the danger is of the Da Vinci Code to me as I read the book, because the whole premise is based on that. And if you're a reader who is kind of on the fence about religion in general, you start to read these pages and they ring true to you. You go, yeah, you know what? I think that's probably true, you know? It's not just that Christianity is evil trying to cover up that Jesus had kids and he wasn't really divine and that they rewrote all the Bible and they threw out the people that didn't agree with them and they did all these terrible things that the book claims happened in the history of the canon. But it's really just that it's not only the church, it's every religion isn't true. There's no truth. It's all just something you kind of believe in because it's good for you. And in our day and age, that's going to sound very good to a lot of people. It's a very popular thing. They may not ever believe. They may say, like you'll see at the end of the Dateline special, they'll say, is there, they ask all the experts, is there any proof that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene or had children? And they say, no, no proof. But that's not going to matter to most people who, who are looking at the movie. They're just going to say, hey, the truth of this is that I don't have to look for the truth. There is no truth. It's all just made up. It's all silly. It's only when those Christians start believing it's true and get all self-righteous that danger happens. And that's kind of the implication in this book, right? So yeah, some of the things that are talked about are the canon itself, you know, the interpretation, how scripture has been, you know, interpreted a million different ways through history. So that's what we're going to spend some time on in the next couple of weeks. After we kind of spend a couple of weeks just on the Da Vinci Code itself, that's good. But what's better is for us to know the real answers. What did happen at the Council of Nicaea? How did we get to our canon? How do we know that scripture is worthy of study? How do we know that it's not been tampered with over time? How do we know the actual copying has been copied correctly? How do we know that when we interpret different languages that we're interpreting them correctly? 
how do scholars do that? We're going to be talking about that because that's going to be at the heart of a lot of this for us as Christians. Not just to rebut the Da Vinci Code, but I think most of us in this room need to know, how did they agree on 66 books? You know, why did it take so long to agree on it? You know, why did they reject some of those other Gospels? Because in this book, the biggest claim is that there's another Gospel that makes Mary Magdalene the chief among all of the disciples. Well, the Council of Nicaea expressly rejected that book. Why? If you believe the Da Vinci Code, it's because we have a conspiracy going on in the church to crush anything pagan and anything feminine and to have the masculine rise. If you believe history, it's probably totally different that that book was corrupt and it was not divinely inspired. That's what the church says. What's the truth? We need to know. Because people are going to ask you, well, aren't there 20 other gospels? Why aren't those included in the Bible? And I think we need to have an answer to say, because they weren't divinely inspired and here's why. Okay? That's kind of where we're going. Right? Most people will believe it's true because there's enough historical fact in this book that you're stunned by the accuracy of the description that you think that really must be true. For example, a lot of it takes place in Paris, okay? And I've been to Paris probably, I think, six times. He describes places in Paris that I know I've walked and seen. And now I'm like, really, even though I know the book's not true, I'm very curious to go back and say, I want to know if that stone is really where he says it is. Because he describes things with such detail, and I'm thinking... Yeah, I know where that is. I know where he's talking about. I know that street he's talking about. I know that alley he's talking about. Is he making a leap or is that really there? And you know he's done his research because the stuff he brings up, it's not original, by the way. It's not like he made it up. There are plenty of books that have proffered the theory that Jesus was married and had children. And there's plenty of secret societies. We know the Freemasons and all sorts of secret societies that existed for a long time. Okay? But... The difference is that he's, he blends them together so well. Like I don't know if any of you guys saw National Treasure. Remember that one with Nicolas Cage? Okay. Remember that one with the whole thing was a treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence? Okay, that one was so far-fetched and so stupid that like, while you watched it, you're like, it's kind of almost funny. <laughs> but you didn't really take it seriously. Dan Brown, I think, does such a good job that you actually could take it very seriously. And especially because if you're one of those people who your whole life you've been wondering about Christianity... This is your excuse to write it off. He gives you the reason to go, yeah, you know what? I, yeah, yeah, I knew there was something wrong about that, you know? I knew there was something fishy about that whole thing. And it, it gives you enough plausible explanations for everything else that I think the average person, who, even though it says it's a fiction novel, will say, you know what? Maybe those characters are fictitious, but every one of those things probably did occur because... The first page of the Vinci Code starts off with a sentence. It says, fact, and it lists some facts. It says, these are absolute facts. The secret society did exist. This Catholic organization does exist, which is the key players in the thing. And then it says something like, every artistic artifact and stuff is accurately represented. I mean, he's basically, unlike starting off with like the introduction, he's starting off saying, yeah, I may have written a work of fiction, but it's absolutely based on evidence. And that I've distorted nothing. So the average person saying, maybe he couldn't come out and write it as a book, so he wrote it as a book of fiction, but it's really all true. That's the disturbing thing about it. Is someone, I would say, someone like me who knows my faith and is not going to be deviated by it, I can read it as a story and go, very interesting. Totally bogus on those points, but very interesting. I like the story. I think that's a minority view. Most people are going to be reading this, especially those who know very little about their own religion or nothing about Christianity, and say... This is really good stuff. This guy finally opened my eyes to the truth about Christianity. That's the danger. There's one thing I want to point out that I noticed when I was reading this. It goes towards really making a great conspiracy story. 
You guys notice how much it always comes back to Da Vinci, and it always is about the Da Vinci Code. It always comes back to him. And I think one of the leaps this book makes in logic, let's just pretend that Leonardo did believe that they were married. Let's pretend that Leonardo did paint the M. Let's pretend that Leonardo thought Jesus was the devil and put little horns on him in the background. It doesn't prove anything. It just proves that Leonardo thought that. And that really is the big leap that this book makes that I think a lot of people, if you were just going to look at it from a logical standpoint, miss. That in this book, you find a lot of interesting things about Leonardo da Vinci that I didn't know. But there's a lot of mystery about him in general. Um, there's one part of the book where they talk about the painting of the Mona Lisa. And I've always, you know, everybody's always wondered, like, what's the Mona Lisa smiling about? What's her secret? And in the book, they promulgate that the reason she's smiling is because the Mona Lisa is actually like a combination of a woman and Leonardo da Vinci painting himself, that she's really androgynous. And that Mona Lisa, the meaning of Mona Lisa, Mona is an amagram for Ammon, which is a god of male fertility and lisa comes from isis you know and so they've got this little thing so that mona lisa really may, basically comes down to meaning male female and if you look at the mona lisa maybe that's why we've always wondered why the most beautiful piece of artwork in the world she's just not that good looking of a woman <laughs> is because she's not a woman she's a man and a woman together that's what the book says well i don't know if that's true or not but even if it is it's only what leonardo thought if he thought all people were part male and part female, and that's why he painted the Mona Lisa the way he did, great, that's what he thought. You know, they made a big deal out of that V over and over, you know, and throughout the book it appears a million times because the V is the symbol of not just fertility or the womb, as they said, it's really the symbol of worship of the female goddess, like Mother Nature, like the feminine, what they call over and over the feminine, and that the church somehow didn't like the fact that pagans worshipped things like the goddesses and mother nature and wanted a male-dominated religion, so they eradicated all images of the V. Okay, let's say that Leonardo thought in the Last Supper, I'm going to put in a big V right there. Okay, good for you. I mean, you can paint anything you want. It doesn't mean that it's true. Remember, he's painting 14, 1500 years after the fact, and whatever he believes really has no impact. I think a lot of people miss that when they read the book. They think, ah, oh, Leonardo must have known something. It's no different than right now if I paint a picture of somebody and put in a whole bunch of hidden symbols. It just shows what I believe. doesn't mean it's true. All throughout the book, they say one of the things in there, they say that Constantine's conversion to Christianity and the whole Roman Empire adopting Christianity was not authentic. It was just that he realized that as he was warring against pagans, that if he, and he, as Christianity was on the rise as a very infectious religion, he just bet on Christianity as opposed to pagan religion, and he didn't really have a, a conversion. Okay, so what? I mean, how many people sit in our churches that have had a real conversion? What does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. The fact that he calls a council and tells them to pick the canon, and he's not a real believer, well, he didn't even go to the council. It doesn't matter. He didn't get to pick the books of the Bible. I mean, so there's more of these leaps throughout the whole thing. If you read it carefully, they're always saying, I bet you didn't know this, and that must mean something. Well, the I bet you didn't know is usually true, and the, that must mean something is usually a leap of logic. You know, like if the Mona Lisa really is an androgynous photograph or a painting of, you know, a man-female, great. Weird. <laughs> All right? Nice fact, you know what I mean? But that doesn't mean anything. You know, even if you say that on the back of the Mona Lisa is scribbled in a whole bunch of notes that explain the whole bloodline of Jesus and Mary Magdalene, and that Leonardo da Vinci hid it there, which is, by the way, not in the book. But let's just say he did that. So What? That's just what he thought. You know, again, it has nothing to do with history. 
And that's the point I think a lot of people are going to be coming at when they say, like when I watched JFK, don't you think it's weird that they would let that guy back in the country? It must be a government conspiracy. You're going to hear a lot of, don't you think it's weird that out of all the people sitting at the table, that one disciple doesn't have a beard, you know? Don't you think it's weird that Jesus' cup is missing, you know, in the painting? It's like, guys, we're analyzing a painting painted by a guy 1,500 years later, you know? Yes, he was an artistic genius, but who cares? doesn't matter you know it doesn't have any it doesn't have any relevance on the bible and notice how many times in the thing it says to find those clues we have to return back to da vinci that's why it's called the da vinci code supposedly da vinci is so brilliant that he can see 1400 years in the past without the gnostic gospels without any knowledge of all the other texts that we have today and without having been there he can tell us what really happened between jesus and mary magdalene and i guess as christians we just have to say i reject that so where are we going Next week, we're going to be actually presenting different pieces of what the book really says, and I want to pick out some passages and start to come up with the truth. Then we're going to kind of move off of that, because I really want to get into how did the canon get picked? You know, one of the claims of the book made is that, like I said, it was a tainted procedure, that the canon was picked, you know, and they rejected some books that should have been included, and they put in books that only favored their point of view. Let's talk about that. How did the books get picked? How did the canon get put together? What was the test for canonicity? What was the test to decide whether a book should be included in our holy scriptures or not? How do we know that scripture is inerrant? You know, how do we make that claim? And why are some books like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospels that they're referring to in this, you know, why, why do we say that those books are, other than the fact that it holds in them, but I mean, why do we reject those books? Okay, so if you're interested in those topics, join us. It's going to be good. Yeah, it's going to be a little scholarly, but I think you guys are grown up enough to take it, right? Let's pray. Lord, I think we stand at the doorway of, of something that's going to happen. I mean, this movie could be either a big flop or it could actually continue what seems to be a cultural moment where we have an opportunity as Christians to step in and speak up. Maybe people are expecting us just to boycott and march in the streets and do a bunch of crazy things that just prove that we're fanatical. And I just pray, Lord, that that not be the reaction we take. I pray that we take a thoughtful maybe studious, maybe historical reaction that shows people that we've done our homework, that our religion, Lord, our faith, our belief in Jesus Christ stands. And that's one of the things that I can say with confidence in all the years that I've studied your word, Lord, that your word stands. And it stands a test of time. It stands a test of history. It stands archaeological tests, logical tests, theological tests. Lord, the evidence is so overwhelming. And I pray, Lord, that we just have minds to capture enough of the information to be able to discuss it with those people who have questions. Yes, Lord, it's easy to get swept up in a good story. And yes, Lord, it's easy. It's easy just to say, you know, I'd rather believe it's not true. But Lord, people still are searching for the truth. I pray that we have enough in our arsenal, Lord, that we've learned here, that we might at least in love offer them an alternative view. Show them the places where Christianity stands the test so that we might invite them to a loving knowledge of you that ends up, Lord, being saving grace that brings them into your presence in heaven forever. Lord, let your Holy Spirit be the one that's doing the work. It's an important task, Lord, that you trusted to us, that we be the ones that tell other people about you. It's an important task because you loved us so much, you went to great depths to die for us, and yet you left in our hands the job of bringing your word to other people. So Lord, let us not shy away from your word. Let us not shy away from opportunities. 
And most importantly, let us not be unprepared when the opportunity presents itself. Your word commands us to always have a reason for the hope that's within us. And Lord, that's what we're here about on Sunday nights, to learn those reasons. Pray in your precious name. Amen.